This is good banter. This is great banter. Do you like podcasts generally, though? This is my very first podcast. This is my very first interview in English about my research about yeah. authoritarianism in Russia. And that's why I'm kind of... <laughs> hey Slava Connection listeners, we're back and I couldn't be more excited to be sitting next to Cullen. Hey! hey. Who have you just talked to? We just talked to Tatiana Tkacheva. She's a research fellow at the Laboratory for Comparative Social Research at the Higher School of Economics in St. Petersburg. Um, we got really into Russian politics, election studies. Political machines, there are politics taking place inside authoritarian systems. It's not all, you can't write it all off. There are still interesting research questions and we, we got a bunch in this episode. Take a listen. I mean, we can throw you with an easy question of, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Tatiana Tkachova. I'm from the Ronald F. Inglehart Laboratory for Comparative Social Research at the High School of Economics in Russia. Recently, I graduated from the University of Helsinki and I got my PhD degree finally. <laughs> Thank you. Congratulations. Um, Yes, well, I'm studying political science. I'm focusing on authoritarian regimes and mainly po Russian politics, Russian regional politics from the regional perspectives of national, Russian elections, and everything that is connected basically to how the authoritarianism in Russia functions. So, yes. Yeah, it's an impressive already uh, resume. All right, well, let's get into it with your paper. The full title, Premature Dismissals of Regional Governors, Protests, and Political Regime Dynamics in Russia from 2013 to 2018. Basically, I'll obviously let you talk about uh, the full paper, but the gist of it is that you notice that since 2012, when popular gubernatorial elections were restored in Russia, the number of premature dismissals of regional governors was going up, and you wanted to find out why. Mm -hmm. um, so what got you interested in, in this sort of topic in general? Well, basically, this is a part of my dissertation, which was mainly about transformation of authoritarian regime in Russia since the restoration of gubernatorial elections and where did it go and how it went to this point. And the original research question of the dissertation was basically, well, okay, the, re the elections were restored and, well, it raised some hope on the political transformation in Russia that it will democratize or maybe a little bit, but it didn't happen and it even got worse. And I was trying to find out why it happened, what, what are the instruments the regime actually employed to uh, survive, to maintain and to, to consolidate. This is particularly the research from one of the chapters of the dissertation where I tried to, I, I actually said that one of the instruments of the new instrument that the regime employed is these premature dismissals of the governors. It's not necessarily the direct dismissal by the president because legally he has just several justifications, several enshrined justification to dismiss a governor, but he still has an informal influence. And it is suggested that more often when the governor leaves his office prematurely, it is initiated by the Kremlin or at least agreed with the Kremlin. And the reason is, the, the question is why? And in this particular research paper, I tried to develop this idea by combining with the protest 
story of Russian regions. And with Alexandra Rumansova, who is my co-author, she, she is a researcher of protest activity, protest actions in Russia, and she collected some data on 2017 protests of Navalny team and 2018 uh, against the pension reform. And we tried to collaborate to make something interesting of this whole story. <laughs> well, I think you were moderately successful. <laughs> <laughs> So could you kind of like walk us through your research process, right? So you've noticed, right, some of these governors are getting dismissed, some are sticking around. What's the deal? And in your paper, you break it down into a lot of these very interesting um, variables that you were examining. So could you walk us through that? Mm -hmm. I would say that basically these most of these variables are quite conventional from other researchers on political machines in Russia and beyond, from uh, governors and this regional politics. And they are more or less a proxy measurements because, well, I just go to official statistics, whether it's Russian statistical services or some electoral data on governors, just calculate how many years they're in the office and so on and so forth. And these are quite proxy measurements. What is interesting, what is more interesting in comparison to the dissertation in this paper is that protest, this whole protest story, and we actually tried to find the one that the data said that would include all of the period we're interested in. However, unfortunately, we don't have such a data set. And we tried to test different data from this Laruped data set, which is by uh, Tamila Lankin and Katerina Tertichne from UCL and LSE. And we've tried some data from our colleagues from Perm State University. We tried this Alexandra Nansva's data and their combinations so to test, to, to cover as much period, as long period as we can. So I would say that the majority of variables are more or less proxies from the official data available online or via these state services. And the only uh, original data is on protests, which, which was collected through the social networks or through Namarsh website. For example, Arupet data are based on Namarsh website. These are more about the events, capturing how often there were protest events in the regions, how they also contain data, data on uh, the number of participants, although we do not include it at this moment in the research, but we'll try to test, I guess, later. And so help me out here. What is the relationship between the governor dismissals and these protests that you've been tracking? It's quite, it's a mixed story. It's, okay. It has mixed results because depending on the data set we include and test, well, basically, the only statistically significant result is with Alexandra Mansva's data on 2017-2018 protests. And uh, the relation is quite counterintuitive, as we expected it. It's a negative relation. So it means that the more protests, the larger the number of protests in the region in this year, the higher the probability that the governor will stay in office which is quite counterintuitive. Well, we thought that maybe it's highly risky for the regional polit politicians, polit politics, and for the national regime as such. Turns out, no. It's actually an open question how to interpret it, what's going on over there, because we might control for the repressiveness of the response measures, for example. Maybe the governor is just capable of handling these protests just to push down all the uh, opposition. Or maybe it's about the massiveness of the uh, protests. A lot of protest events, 
but uh, the participants, like hundreds of participants, and that's it. So it's not really dangerous for the regime. Uh, it still should be tested later. But also what we think is maybe that there is already some argument in the literature that protests in authoritarian regimes may be used as a signaling function, as a source of signals uh, from below. Well, the autocrat, the dictator, may allow some protests just to test, to check the sources of support for oppositions, the potential uh, revolt sources, and to, to handle it in the long-term perspective. Uh, so this is another explanation why it actually may be the case. I mean, if I can jump in, I think my uh, foremost example I was thinking of while I was reading your paper was the situation in Khabarovsk, where uh, Sergei Fergal was dismissed, arrested, and uh, uh, Mikhail Dikteryov was his replacement, and the protests continued, and they were massive news-making, and I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, like, oh, you know, he's probably, you know, as, as we were following it a couple of years ago, I was thinking he was going to be on his way out, like, Dikteryov is going to be gone, he was an interim governor, but then, you know, once elections roll around, he'll he'll be dismissed probably. But he's still around, and that's that's interesting that that like matches that counterintuitiveness because you do do sort of think you know you have all of these protests, you can't keep track of of the region that you're governing, so you should probably go. But you know, Dick Therof has stuck around. Yes, that's paradox. I mean, it's more of another questions, right? Why actually such massive protests as is, is, as in Khabarovsk did not lead to anything, did not result to in any solution to for or dismissal of Dikterov or whatever, any any response to to the crowd. And that's an interesting question because for me, maybe not from my particular research, but I just trying to think of it, it seems that any protest that does not lead to, uh, I don't know, to aggressive measures, to aggressive uh, protesting, any protest that is just about walking on the streets and having some slogans uh, and that's it, well, let people do that. No problem. What, what, what will they do? Will they go to the Kremlin with this crowd from Khabarovsk to Moscow? No, of course they will not. Maybe such a crowd protest in Moscow and St. Petersburg would lead to, to a lot of more repressive measures, right? In Khabarovsk, who cares? But this is just my hypothesis that maybe these whole peaceful protests, they, they do matter. From the literature, we know that they do matter still as signaling to elites, for example, or to the autocrat himself and herself. Yes, but 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 Kabar shows that not 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 always. Mm-hmm. Something should still be triggering triggering in this story, and I don't know what. Questions to be answered later. Well, let's bring it back to your paper. So, right, you are testing these cases for you know their economic of these governors, uh, how you know. Effective are they economically, their electoral loyalty, their political capacity? What is sort of altering whether they stay or whether they leave? What are, what are the conclusions that you came to? The main reason explaining this whole career rotations, gubernatorial rotations in the region uh, and dismissals are premature uh, is not about their economic efficacy, is not about how bad managers they are or good managers in terms of economic development of the region. It's not about their electoral loyalty because previous story of gubernatorial politics with the Kremlin showed that those governors who provide higher electoral support for United Russia or Vladimir Putin or Dmitry Medvedev, depending on the period, they actually save their positions and their job as governors. 
Now we show that it's not the case anymore, but actually we sh I show it in my another paper as well, that electoral loyalty doesn't matter per se. Uh, what matters is there, as we call it, political capacity. And we measure differently. Well, one of the measurements is this protest activity. And the thing is, those governors who are capable of managing both elites in the region and this protest potential of the region, they may uh, survive in office for a longer period and will not live. Well, still, it's debatable because it's measured, uh, it's uh, approximated, right, by different variables. But this is the main result, that it's more about how, how they are able to handle the potential political risks, as we call it. So I guess you sort of touched on it a little bit, but, you know, you have a very solid start to this paper, but you want to build on it. Like, what paths do you think you maybe want to take? Yeah. I think it depends on the feedback we will receive, because we were thinking to, to actually to continue this particular research after we receive some feedback. And we want to update the data as well, because 18, 2018 is quite far away. And also, we are waiting for our colleagues from Katerina Tertichna. They're still working on their data set, and they have a longer period now, which allows us to test a more whole data set, data set without these combinations of different sources. Because, well, this is another reason why, for example, one data works and other don't, is that one data set is um, based on rather local events, local protest events, while Alexander Romanov's data are more about this uh, whole national protests, Navalny and pension reform. That's, this is why we also interpreted that uh, local problems do not matter for the Kremlin, but those which can mobilize nationally as mm -hmm. Navalny and uh, anti-pension reform, these are interesting. So this, that's why we want to get a more whole data set, uh, more holistic um, and uh, we, we will try to do it in this particular paper, but if it doesn't, if, if it's not possible for several reasons. Yes, I would like to continue this story. And I actually, I, I'm actually thinking after, after this whole dissertation story that I would like to continue it more in terms of political trajectories uh, under authoritarianism. Because in my dissertation, in this particular paper, I saw regional governors as um, subnational actors, subordinates of the main regime. And as the main, well, let's say, function, political function of the Kremlin's strategies. In this respect, it's interesting whether this whole dismissals is punishment or awarding. And then the question is for what they punish, what they award. And also it's interesting that uh, it's not only about dis the dismissals. The government must still leave their office and go to get promoted, for example. They may become ministers or heads of some other higher positions. And the question is, is it good? Is it bad? Does it mean that the governor uh, actually lost his power and became... It's a research question. So, the, yeah, I, I would like to, to go more into details on the tra trajectories. It's more about, like, nomenclatura 2.0, something like that. Sexy, sexy titles. That's a good one. <laughs> no, none of these names. I'm trying to remember them from the papers. <laughs> but I, I have a question about what you were just saying. I thought that was an interesting idea that, like, that I hadn't even it hadn't occurred to me that it's a reward to mm -hmm. remove be removed from the governorship. Across the board, like what what goes into the actual administrative day to day? Like I don't for for people like me who don't know a whole lot about the Russian state's internal bureaucratic organization. 
are there better or worse places to get posted or is it generally just a bad gig? Um, that's a good question. I'm sorry for evaluating your questions, but that's a good question. The thing is that, well, actually there are debates because some think that being a governor in Russia is the best position for a bureaucrat is the highest position, uh, meaning that you have power, actual power in the region. You have, I don't know, apparatus, a, a administrative apparatus to govern. You have solutions to, make, to be made. And the highest, the highest official above you is only the president, basically. Others, and which means that actually being uh, dismissed from this office is losing your potential, political potential, and losing your career. Others suggest that no, it's not actually. And if you're a prime minister, you're closer to the highest officials in the Kremlin, which means you're uh, within this, for example, Buena de Mosquita framework of selectorate and winning coalitions, you're becoming more of a part of the winning coalition than the selectorate. So it gives you other opportunities of negotiating and influencing politics. That's the 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 question. And I, I don't know. I know just cases when the governors were, were dismissed and they received their own ministry or committee was created just for, for their for their role mm. as a head. In this case it seems interesting and it's not punishing, I guess. Mm. But still it depends on the ministry, right? Because it may be the Minister of Fishery and something agricultural, nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's, it's discussed more as uh, a downgrade. So there's different contexts. Like you, you, you get dismissed, but you get another job on the surface. It's like, oh, that's good. You, you, you actually get moved into somewhere mm -hmm. else, but it could actually just be a, a, another layer of punishment of like, oh, well, you didn't do that great there. So now you get put into the ministry of nothing. Yeah. And the only thing you can do as a head, I don't know, just so it, like you're becoming a more a simple bureaucrat, right? Rather than politician making his own decisions and ruling, manipulating. With your own little petty fiefdom. Mm -hmm. you know, you're like the boyar of your little mm -hmm. province. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get to the, yeah, the minister of cleaning the toilets in the Kremlin. <laughs> Highly honored. Yeah, yeah. It's important work. I was interested in the paper you sent along about how do people get appointed to electoral position? How do people win elections? In an authoritarian yeah. system, how do people end right. up in the position to be the party candidate? Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's actually the paper about, not, not simply about how people win elections, because, well, I, I think in authoritarian context, we're quite used to winning elections, but we just, well, we understand how they win them. Uh, the question was more about how people without party resources, right, uh, those uh, people nominated by themselves, and the legislation in Russia allows to do that. We we call it self-nominees, samovudvizhensi, or independent candidates, although it's different. It's different from a legal perspective than independent, but still self-nominees. They have sources, uh, they have resources and an opportunity to nominate themselves if they collect some number of signatures of the population, so on and so forth. And we wondered how it's possible in authoritarian elections without party support or any political force to win elections as a self-nominee. And we tested it, uh, we, we, we took local elections in Russian regional capitals and turns out that, well, basically we wanted to know maybe it's about their resources, maybe they're already 
powerful politicians or businessmen or their heads of some state organizations, kindergartens, hospitals. But turns out that it is the, the case of uh, powerful resources as either uh, ex-politicians or heads of something. But also what is more important is that they win elections if they have connections with the United Russia Party. Either direct connections, so we've just not Googled, but Yandexed, it's another search, <laughs> Russian search system that is just uh, better in terms of uh, searching in Russian language. We Yandexed those candidates and uh, found the information, whether they were affiliated with United Russia previously or the actual party members that are just running as self-nominees. And it turns out that many of them are United, United Russia affiliated and this the main determinant of their victory in elections. And also we approximated these connections with United Russia and it also mattered for their victories. So this actually was a good example. I mean academic example, research example of what happened in Moscow in 2019, I guess, when there was no United Russia nominated candidate, but actually after the elections to the city, they had this whole faction uh, of United Russia and it, it contained basically self-nominists who were just United Russia candidates running secretly. So why run as a self-nominee? Why not just be openly United Russia? Well, when this happened in Moscow, the main explanation was that United Russia is, and I would agree that it's, it may be the main explanation, right? United Russia is not that popular anymore. Even more, United Russia is actually very unpopular in Russia just because everybody, well, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people already understand that it's not okay. It's not a good party. They don't uh, make the solutions we want. They don't govern the way we want. They're just uh, crooks and thieves. And the label is very, very, has, has these bad connotations. That's why in 2019, it was already a solution to run as a self-nominee, just not have this whole flur of bad party try to distance from the bad things associated with it. So the outcome is basically there are not really independent nominees mm -hmm. or not successful ones. Yes, they're not, either they're not independent or they just already have powerful resources and bases of something. We interpreted in the paper, we interpreted it as a, a prospect for not, maybe not democratization, but still uh, a prospect to participate in politics for those who are independent, who may be interested in doing something. However, I'm more and more the time passes. I think that it's rather a sign signal of this cooptation process, that if we have some candidates who are running as self-nominates and have this strong basis of support, it's better to allow them to, to, to get elected in order to incorporate this basis of support into the power vertical structure and to, into this whole local political environment to use it further for mobiliz electoral mobilization and whatever needs. So in my opinion, it, it fits into this log logic of computations perfectly. But I would like to test it somehow further, whether it's possible to test either if it's a cooptation or, or not, or it's just independent. Just future research that you can do, just... Maybe, maybe one day. <laughs> maybe if your listeners have an idea how to do that, they will drop your email in the in the episode description. If you have any, <laughs> it's happened before. That's absolutely true. It's not. It wouldn't be the first time. 
I would also like love to take maybe 10 minutes to talk about your other paper about, you know, political machines and kind of, right, we've looked at the politicians. Now let's look at how, you know, in essence, the Russian people are motivated to vote. Um, and you describe, you know, po political machines are not just a Russian phenomenon. Um, but could you kind of describe what those are? Like people might not be familiar with what a political machine even is. Okay, I'll try. Well, originally, this whole term and this whole notion of political machines came from the United States, as of course you know, probably. <laughs> I guess so. Tammany uh, Hall, am I right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, from these large cities of the 19th century, Chicago as well, New York, Kansas City, and many, many others. And basically, uh, as, as I understand, at, at that time, political machines described this uh, vertical political structure, political networks of patronage and uh, providing some materials, incentives in exchange for the electoral loyalty, for electoral support. It may be either protection, social protection from the immigrants, for example, from the migrants, for, not from, for migrants. It may be job uh, opportunities, it may be just money, food, whatever. Later, this notion of political machines transferred to understanding of countries, of other countries worldwide, and now it's more used for explaining politics in authoritarian regimes, and especially in Russia. In Russia, it was brought after the collapse of the Soviet Union and to explain these processes in the regions in the early 90s, how these regional chief executives, governors, actually became powerful agents in bargaining with the Kremlin, how it developed and what, what actually happened. And, and it proved this concept of political machines proved to be very useful uh, in explaining what's going on in Russian regions. And the most, this most recent study actually shows that while previously political machines were independent of the Kremlin, this was in the hands of the governors and it was their instrument to negotiate with the Kremlin, whether we can mobilize electoral support for you or we'll, we will not do that. Uh, now it's more, it's basically finally incorporated to this whole vertical political regime in Russia through the United Russia structures, as we show in our paper, for example, with Grigory Golosov, and that actually this measurement, how, how to measure, how to test the strengths of political machines is uh, now to conduct United Russia primaries, primary elections. We do have them, <laughs> surprisingly, but not in that way. Yeah, so... And the turnout at the United Russia primaries is a good indicator of how how powerful is the government, how capable is the government to mobilize electoral support later at the elections. So this was the finding we, we have in this paper. I'm curious because with political machines, they're not overt. They're very under the table. They're very secretive in a way. It's not something you advertise. So how do you go about researching something like that? Like, what are your sources of, you know, indicating it's like, oh, political machines were used here versus, you know, not? That's a good question. In this, <laughs> <laughs> in this particular paper, we try to approximate it through this turnout uh, at the United Russia primaries. But in other researches of political machines, I can just give you some names, like Stanislav Shkel. He's one of the main researchers in Russia, located in Russia, who study political machines. And he studies them more in qualitative manner. He, he makes, he conducts uh, focus groups with people in those regions, which we assume to be politically mobilized more than others. He has interviews with those people. And we also have uh, research with uh, Stanislav 
uh, but unfortunately, it's in Russian, a journal. But still, uh, to, to, to test, he, he conducted those focus groups in Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, in some villages, and uh, just how people talk about what's going on, how they mobilize. They say that, for example, it's exactly the mechanism of political machines working. When the head, uh, like the employer is calling and saying, you have to go to vote for this particular person, please send us a picture that you voted. If you're not voting, you will lose your, I don't know, salary for this month or you will be punished somehow. So this is this administrative pressure that has been already uh, well documented in the literature as well. So, yes, this is one of the examples just to talk to people and to find out. Another example is more not about political machines, but about falsifications. We have these statistical methods, how to detect falsifications. And uh, you can learn more from Kirill Kalinin's uh, work on that. Another colleague of mine, Elena Romina, she has this measure, statistical measure of if there's the turnout is street standard deviations uh, below or above the median, it's maybe okay. But if below or higher, it's not okay. It's a show of uh, falsifications, frauds. So, yes, I guess if you want to know electoral falsification about electoral falsification, it's more measured through statistical things. If you want to learn about how it's mobilized, it's still the question, actually, but there are already researchers trying to qualitatively measure it to find the sources. I think, I think we, yeah... We can let you go. Really? <laughs> that was fun. Did you like it? Yeah. I'm glad you were a natural. That was yeah. wonderful. Like, Maybe that's what I should do in my life, right? Podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. We actually had the idea to, to do a podcast in Russia yeah. before this whole... You know? Yeah. Yep. There's not enough. Even There's more interest in it now. You should still do yeah. it. There's not enough. That was wonderful. You did the thing that we love with guests where, you know, you start answering a question, but then you'll like hit other questions along the way. And just like, it's, you you, you make our work easy because you're just like, all right, well, there was that question. Done, done. (laughs) And you got me trying to remember the name of the the guy who runs the political machine in an American tale. The movie? The movie. Yeah. Honest John. Are you familiar with American tale? No. It's about a mouse who's an immigrant from Russia, and he moves to the United States in the 1910s or something. Tail like a mouse. Oh. Yeah. He lives, his name, his name's uh, Fievel Mouskowitz, Mouskowitz, and his, his shtetl is burned by Cossacks, and so they flee and come to America. Yep. He's not making this up. This sounds made up, but yeah. it's very... And he falls in with Gussie Mouseheimer, voiced by Madeline Kahn, who's like sort of the... Like, yeah, yeah, it's an animated, it's it's an animated children's movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's the sequel, Five O Goes West, where he takes Horace Greeley's advice and goes west, young mouse, to live the American dream. But there's a political machine. When he goes in, when he arrives in New York, he gets caught up in this political machine run by this mouse called Honest John. It's a fictional movie. Yeah, but it's based on like it's and it's based on American, like a time in American history. Yeah, yeah, right. Fun fact for a study abroad, like teaching English abroad in Japan um, program that I did, that was a very popular answer for the question of how would you represent American culture to Japanese children? It's that movie. (laughs) That does scratch like a certain itch on like of Americana. Like it's a certain time and place in American history when like also a lot of people's like family came over then. It's a great movie. (laughs) 
So if you have it's time. Well, this will have a nine-hour flight. Perfect. I, I should download it. You can see both of them. <laughs> so much time. <laughs> they're not that long. They are children's movies. Like, they're pretty short. There's one thing you've learned from this podcast. Yeah, it's this. It just took a, a taste of Americanski Multiki. And we're done recording. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces.